Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, Healthcare's Culture's New Heartbreak, where we talk about all things leadership, burnout, and culture. I'm your co-host, Jessica Zampetri. And I'm Becky Wolf, and today I have the pleasure of introducing a, a guest, Dr. Edgar Shajawi. He is a um, medical doctor from Dalhousie University, graduated from Dalhousie University, Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada, and trained in cardiac surgery at the McGill University Health Center in Montreal, Quebec. Shadrawi completed a Master's of Science in Experimental Surgery in the McGill Surgeon Scientist Training Program. After becoming a Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Canada in Cardiac Surgery, he pursued an advanced fellowship degree, sorry, an advanced fellowship in heart and lung transplantation and mechanical circulatory support at Stanford University Medical Center in Palo Alto, California. In 2004, Dr. Shajawi began practice at North Shore University Health System in Evanston, Illinois, as an assistant professor of surgery at Northwestern University. In 2007, he was recruited to the University of Illinois at Chicago to lead the Advanced Aortic Surgery Program. In 2008, Shajawi received the Ali Sheridan Award from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons to complete the leadership program in health policy and management at Brandeis University. In 2011, UIC promoted Dr. Shadrawi to Associate Professor of Surgery with tenure. During his 10 years at UIC, Shadrawi served as the Medical Director for Cardiothoracic Surgery and Vice Chair, Vice Chairman of Department of Surgery at Tenant Healthcare Wise Hospital. With his completion of a Master's in Health Administration at the UIC School of Public Health, he subsequently pursued Certified Physician Executive Certification by the Certifying Commission on Medical Management and the American Association of Physician Leadership. Shajari currently practices at Queen Elizabeth II Health Sciences Center in Halifax and is an Associate Professor of Surgery and Health Administration at Dalhousie University. Shajari was promoted at, to Head Division of Cardiac Surgery at Nova Scotia Health Authority in 2018, a position he held until 2022. His clinical career is focused on minimally invasive cardiothoracic surgery and cardiac surgery for advanced heart failure. Academically, his primary focus has been surgery, uh, medical education. Shajari's research has focused on healthcare team design, dynamics, collaborative care, innovations in healthcare services delivery. Administratively, he has served in leadership roles for quality and patient safety, as well as physician practice management and strategic planning for surgical programs. Dr. Shajari currently serves on the STS Workforce for Patient Safety and Function as a cohort leader for CPE certification at the AAPL. Shajari became a fellow of the American College of Surgeons in 2008 and a fellow of the AAPL in 2021. He also serves as the editorial board for Physician Leadership on the Physician Leadership Journal. He has more than 15 years of healthcare executive leadership experience in both private and public health systems in the United States, Canada, and the Middle East and North Africa. Dr. Shadari, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we are so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yes. So we're going to open just with asking the same question that we asked all of our guests. Uh, if there is one thing you could chat from the rooftops that you want every person in healthcare to hear about culture, burnout, or medicine in general, what would that be? You know, I think the one, the one thing you'd want everyone to hear and know and listen to is that a healthy workplace, a healthy workforce, and workplace culture is essential to both clinical and financial success nowadays in any health system. So looking after our employees and their well-being is really paramount and crucial to success of any healthcare system, both clinically and financially. 
Yeah. Have you been firsthand in systems where they did not put that huge emphasis on the people? And can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. You know, over the years working on both sides of the Canadian U.S. border, you see how different health systems may or may not prioritize their employee well-being. Uh, specifically, you know, in my case, the, seeing the physicians and nurses deal with uh, healthy or not so healthy workplace cultures. And what you notice is it really leads to higher turnaround in the physician staff and the nursing staff. It leads to less and less retention, less and less uh, employee satisfaction. And that really translates into providing less and less or poor quality clinical care. And it does reflect in the financials of the institution. You know, staff turnaround is expensive. It's hard to recruit good quality nurses, good quality physicians, physician assistants, physical therapists, occupational therapists. So all of that adds to the financial expense of the institution. So employee well-being, employee retention, I think is very important these days. Yeah, and you have a really unique experience too with working in different areas, so in Canada and the U.S. and um, some different locations. Uh, with all of that experience, are you seeing differences um, from one country to another? Oh, there's no doubt. I think the there's no perfect place to work. I always tell people this, and each country or each health system, believe it or not, will prioritize differently its healthcare staff's well-being. You know, even in the Chicago market, where I worked for uh, 15 years almost, you could tell how different universities or different academic centers or even private centers would prioritize them, some more than others. But the true success, as I said, both clinically and financially, is when you actually start to prioritize your employee well-being. Because the biggest asset to any health system is not the number of physicians or nurses they have. It's literally the goodwill the physicians and nurses play. You know, if nurses are there for 12-hour shifts, trust me, they're putting in 14 hours. A lot of that is of their own goodwill that they put and they invest in the patient care. They they didn't go into the profession for money. They went into it because they love it and they love helping people. So I think when you treat your employees well, they in turn will treat your clients and your patients well. And I'm a firm believer in that. The Institute for Healthcare Improvement had its triad of giving better access to more people at an affordable cost. They eventually made it a not just a triad, but they added a quadruple aim. And the fourth aim was in a healthy workplace culture. So ideally, what we want to do is provide better access to more patients and better quality care at an affordable price and a healthcare workplace culture that is pleasant and not toxic and not disruptive. So even the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the IHIs, realize that providing a healthy workplace for our employees is of paramount importance to healthcare delivery. And it's essential for the viability of any health system, whether you're in a public or private system, anywhere in the world, we know that treating our employees better will lead to better care. What do you think the three like key things for employee well-being to have at a facility really is? Like if you could hit three key points, what would that look like? I think the first is respect. The employees want to feel respected and valued. The second is they want to feel that they're making a difference. They're having an impact on the quality and care quality of lives and the care they're providing to patients. And the third is really a professional uh, value, which is they want their, their own continual professional development supported. So a lot of nurses will say, I love being a bedside nurse, but you know what? I'd love to pursue some management options or some management experience, or I'd love to be involved in this quality project or other projects. So 
looking at the individual staff's own personal development and supporting it doesn't have to be financial. It could just be with protecting some time off or helping them go to conferences or go to other uh, avenues to help improve their own professional development. I think employees truly appreciate that. So I think those are really the three things, to feel respected, to feel that they're making an impact, and to help contribute to their own individual professional development. I think when health systems provide that or help provide that, it improves retention, it reduces turnaround, and it provides better care. And you know, you highlighted several different things there. Uh, you're highlighting, you know, the differences between even practice to practice, and I think that's really interesting. You've worked in so many different areas, and yet it seems so localized to the practices and where um, they're actually taking care of people and whether or not. What additional benefits do you see to collaborative care, even? So you highlighted um, with the the nursing staff and like the professional development of those key things that you just mentioned but what additional benefits do you see with being able to be a collaborative workforce in in medicine in general it's a great question you know my um my master's thesis was on collaborative care and we looked at healthcare service delivery in a very focused environment literally a cardiac surgery unit at a hospital i ran in chicago and i ran the service there and our length of stay was too long so the CEO tasked me with the mission to reduce our length of stay and hey, maybe we could even reduce cost. So we set up what's called collaborative care rounds. So ironically, we tasked one attending physician with one resident every day to come by, round on a post-op cardiac vascular and thoracic surgery floor. And it was a one-year project. We had to train the physician in collaborative care. There was always a nurse available, a social worker available, a discharge planner, physical therapist, pharmacist, as well as the cardiology uh, physician or representative and the surgical physician or representative. So we brought together this collaboration, so to speak, of healthcare providers who were already involved in the care of the patient, but with a specific reason to shorten length of stay. So as soon as a patient was post-op day one, the discharge planner got involved. The discharge planning, in fact, even started before the surgery, before they had their bypass surgery or their thoracic surgery or their vascular surgery. By collaborating, by empowering all members of the team to speak up, we were able to show within a year that we could reduce the length of stay by almost a day. By year five of the study, it truly was a five-year study, we reduced the length of stay for this post-op CVT floor in an academic medical center by almost two and a half days. The When you ask what other impact it could have, the investment up front was about $800,000 to hire a nurse practitioner and a PA specifically designated to this floor and this purpose. We paid the investment back within a year and a half. And by year five, it was actually turning a profit, so to speak, or basically saving money. So I thought it was a huge success. It was kind of a wonderful project for me to involve with as a student, even though ironically, I was the head of the, <laughs> head of the cardiac surgery service there. But it was something the CEO tasked me with. It was actually my very first administrative project that I ran. And we affectionately called it collaborative care rounds because that's what it was. So we were able to show, this was back in 2009, so 13 years ago, that involving, not just involving everyone, but empowering them to make a decision and help contribute to the care, letting the bedside nurse speak up, letting the pharmacist speak up, having the discharge planner have a say from post-op day one of a coronary bypass or a valve patient that was able to shorten like this day. We went from, I think, an average of six days down to about four by the fifth year. And I know that may not seem by much, just two days, but you can imagine how much it is on a post-op cardiac surgery or thoracic surgery floor for every day. By lowering it by two days for about you know 1,500 patients makes a big deal per year. 
So I thought that yeah. was a huge success. And uh, ironically, we put a lot of work into it. And it was really a, a statement as to the success of those nurses, discharge planners, physical therapists, the PAs who are all involved. I think as attendings, we kind of take kind of the post-op care for granted sometimes, but specifically training the attendings to go back and look at the patients themselves and look at everyone's patients. We just assigned one patient to all the services. The physicians empowered everyone else to speak up because the physician was not there as the leader. And he, the physician, he or she were there as an equal participant. And I think by empowering all the members of the healthcare team to speak up, have a true collaboration, we were able to get rid of a lot of the issues that delayed discharge. And this, I think it was almost 1,600 patient a year service that had a length of stay of six days on average, went down to four days by the end of year five. So by reducing length of stay by two days times 1,500 patients, that's literally 3,000 days times, let's say on average, $3,000 a day, you can see what the cost savings were. Yeah. So that's why I'm a firm believer that enhancing collaboration and empowering all members of the team to speak up was not just a clinical improvement, but also a financial improvement for that service. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you say in a lot of this is how much pride you had to build that and be a part of it. Now, when you say physicians stepping back and not being the leader, was there challenges to that to get them to do that and to have the others speak up in that environment? And can you talk through some of those challenges that challenges that might have been present? Sure. You know, if you look at team dynamics in healthcare settings and uh, how teams are designed, Traditionally, the physician has kind of been sort of the de facto leader, and that's great. I'm a firm fan and student of physician leadership. I, I tra I've been trained in it, and I, I enjoy training further future physician leaders. But being the leader doesn't mean you're actually in charge. You can still lead by being a servant leader and helping others feel empowered to speak up and contribute. At the end of the day, you know, what, what's the definition of a team? It, it's a group of people with complementary skill sets that are all working for the same objective. In a, and they hold each other accountable to work towards that objective. So a cardiac surgery team is not a bunch of cardiac surgeons. A cardiac surgery team is the cardiac surgeon with his or her assistant, their nurse, their physician assistant, their nurses, aide, the pharmacist, all the members of the team that are involved in the perioperative care. That's what the true team is. So we all have complementary skill sets are all working towards the same objective, just to provide the best quality care we can in that environment. And we should hold each other mutually accountable. So even though I'm the cardiac surgeon, yeah, I want to hear from my scrub nurse if they think there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. I would like to hear from the pharmacist if I missed a medication in the post-op time period or if something needs to be adjusted. I want to hear from the physical therapist or the PA if there's any mobility issues or any issues going on perioperative care. So we don't have to be the leader. We kind of lead the process, but we don't have to be the leader, so to speak, in the sense that we're in charge. We're not really in charge. We're there to work together as a team. So we have to value and respect everyone for their skill set that they bring to the table. And always remember, we're there for the same purpose, to do what's best for the patient. So it truly is a collaborative effort uh, in the team sense. I think that there's been this mindset um, and, you know, talking to other physicians and um, it can feel uh, almost isolating, I think, for some physicians because they feel like they have to have all the answers. And so therefore, like they almost feel like they have to take the lead in those senses. Yeah. And I know you do a lot of physician coaching uh, and executive yep. coaching uh, with administration. 
Um, so can you speak to that mindset and how you help them be part of the team in that sense? You know, leadership can be lonely because you're expected to have all the answers. And I always tell people from the beginning, I don't have all the answers, but I know which questions to ask. And you guys have the answers. Mm -hmm. And if you start off the session like that, I can't tell you how people all of a sudden their mindsets change. Oh my God, Shadrami doesn't have all the answers. No, I don't. (laughs) But I do know which questions to ask to tease those answers out of you. So whenever we have to sort of uh, brainstorm through a project, I bring in the nurse and the physical therapist and the pharmacist and ask the PA and the NP, hey guys, like this like this stays too long. How can we fix it? And they're all just like dead silent. Like, oh my God, he doesn't know how to fix this. I'm like, no, I don't. You guys do. You tell me what's going wrong here. And that empowers them to come in. So for the physician leader, having them realize that it's okay not to have all the answers, it is okay. But you want to have mission, vision, and values clear in your head. You want to know where you're going. I always ask the leaders to ask themselves that. They need to be clear on their mission. They need to be clear on their vision, and they need to be clear on their values. It's the values that are most important. The vision is where we want to go, but the values are how we're going to get there. Who are we? How do we roll? Are we transparent? Are we accountable? Are we team players? Are we focused on quality? You pick your values, but you have to live and breathe by them. So when the physician leader is clear on those, then he or she can all of a sudden relax a bit and empower others to start making the decisions, do the brainstorming. So you are kind of the quarterback as the physician leader. And it can be a very lonely process, especially if you're the only person in that venue leading. But I think it's a skill set that comes over time. You can be trained in it. Um, On the coaching side, you know, coaching is very different than mentoring and consulting. So on the coaching side, As a coach, I partner with the client to understand what they're going through and to help bring out the best version of them. That's really what coaching is all about. So with physician leaders, it's a a great process. I learn from it myself every time. And uh, Mm -hmm. through various training leadership courses that I uh, participate in, it's it's a great experience. And it kind of, you think it kind of improves your own skills as a leader, but you know, leadership is a people sport. Right. It's a people management sport. It's all about understanding people. And uh, that's really what leadership is all about. And uh, whenever physicians come up and ask me, you know, how do I train in this or do this? I tell them, you know, there are many avenues to train as a physician leader. It's not just getting a master's in healthcare administration or getting an MBA. It's about really you taking the time to self-reflect, understand who you are as a person, what type of leader you want to be, having your own leadership philosophy, your leadership persona building it from there and then others will see that in you and and they will follow i'm a firm believer in that but you want to be first and foremost you have to lead yourself and be true to yourself then you can learn how to lead others so it's but as i said it's the leaders does not have to be the captain of the team with all the answers i I always break the ice by saying i don't have all the answers but i know which questions to ask and i can tell you how that just changes everyone's mood in the room and they all get to take a little laugh out of it as well so that's good but you know, the point is we're, we're in it together. I think that's the yeah. message I always try to make. And I love that you start with that because it does show vulnerability on your end and allows the door to open, just like you said, where you don't have all the answers. So now the whole mental shift is we've got to find the answers. And so great, totally just great line. Now, I mean, your career kind of speaks for itself. You've been dedicated to this personal growth, leadership, and all of these things. And first, just want to acknowledge and applaud you for that. That's 
not usually the norm. And so um, really appreciation for that. Was there something that made you go that track, like a defining moment or what kind of in your life made you to made you really decide to like hunker down and do your personal growth and leadership development and all of that? Sure. You know, they say uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So I was kind of thrown into it, unfortunately, or fortunately, however (laughs) you look at it. Um, In 2007, I was only about three years into practice and I moved from uh, the Edmondson Hospital uh, campus to University of Illinois. And I was sort of tasked with uh, two of the uh, peripheral sites. And they said to me, you know, you're the boss there, just make it work. And I looked at my boss and I kind of laughed. I said, really, I'm, I'm 35 years old. I've never run a division or a practice in my life. And he's like, yeah, yeah, just make it work. I said, okay. I had no idea how to make it work. I applied for the uh, Society of Thoracic Surgeons, the SDS leadership course, which I ended up getting that scholarship for that Becky had mentioned. And I was interested in just the whole concept of, you know, how to run a practice, how to run a hospital or health system. And then the next year I signed up for a master's in healthcare administration. I went back and did an MHA degree, which was quite an eye-opening experience. I had not sat in a classroom in 10 years, at least. And here I am in 2009 with a great, phenomenal group of MHA students. They were all in their early 20s. And there I am in my, you know, mid to late 30s. And it was just hilarious, the comments they would make to me. And um, it was just fun being a student again in a classroom. Obviously, I was a busy cardiac surgeon at the same time. So I did it super part-time. It was basically one night a week for almost three years. I could, it was basically, every Monday night, I would go to class. The other class or two, I would do online. And I dragged it out over, I think, two and a half years. I graduated in 2012, so it was actually three calendar years. But that's just really the fastest I could do it. And uh, it really opened my eyes, you know, whether it was uh, health law issues, quality issues. Uh, my favorite was strategic planning. I think that's why my, uh, my thesis was on collaborative care. The other side was strategic execution. So understanding workplace culture and how, you know, it doesn't matter how good your strategic plan is. If the culture isn't there, it's not going to work. They always say culture eats strategy for breakfast. So no matter how good your strategic plan is, you have to have the proper workplace culture. So I just opened my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't quite appreciate at that age and at that stage in my career. So when people ask what was the defining moment, I think the defining moment was me realizing I had no idea how to run a cardiac surgical practice, you know, as a Canadian grad moving to the States. Again, that was also an issue and um, that I had to deal with. So just learning all these things, um, you know, it was kind of uh, tough in the beginning, but, you know, you fumble through them, you make mistakes. But the important thing is that you learn from them and uh, you be true to yourself. I think that's what matters. No, I love that. And I love um, there's throughout the whole time you've been talking, I hear like this piece of ownership. So it's ownership of yourself and who you are as a leader. And then you're also empowering others to take ownership, the pieces that they have within the collaborative teams. Uh, and doing the work that you do, I would love, could you share um, something that has been like a big win for you or even a small win, whatever that looks like, but something that has been incredibly fulfilling for you? Um, other than the, the collaborative care that you mentioned, I'm sure there's other things within the executive leadership part of things that has been uh, fulfilling for you. So can you share a story with us? Sure, sure. You know, at um, one of the hospitals I worked in Chicago, I was on the Physician Leadership Council. And I co-chaired that with uh, one of the more senior physicians. 
and I wasn't quite sure why I was there. I was still pretty young and um, junior in my career at that hospital. So one day I, I specifically asked the, the senior physician, I said, you know, you and I co-chair these physician leadership initiatives. Why is that? And he said to me, Eddie, I'm the past and you're the future. So you've seen the light. And at this point, I was a student in the MHA program. And he said to me, you've seen the light and you're working towards it properly. The days of the accidental leaders are gone, guys like me. But the days of the properly trained and formally designed leaders like you are starting to come in. So I need you to spread the word. And this was in 2010, I believe, so 12 years ago. So my job was really to help encourage other physicians in the hospital to see if they'd want to pursue formal training in physician leadership. So over time, more and more were encouraged, more and more went back to school, did either their MBAs or MHAs, and more and more ended up pursuing more formalized training as CPEs, as certified physician executives. So when I look back now at that health system, and I've left it obviously six years ago, but when I look back, they still reach out to me and say, hey, you know, thanks to you, we now have, you know, 12 people here with MHA degrees or MBAs who actually know, know how to run practices and have built our outpatient network and our inpatient services. So I think that for me, it's, uh, it's cool. I mean, I, I enjoy teaching and training and I, I kind of take pride in it. And I, uh, I love seeing, uh, you know, my, my candidates grow. Just this week, the American Association for Physician Leadership uh, sent us the announcement that uh, the candidates from the last certified physician executive training program passed. So it was great. All eight of my guys in my cohort passed. So that's great. And that's another eight physicians who now have uh, CPE credentials. So I, I, I take pride in that. I enjoy the training, the academic side. And uh, I always say, you know, their, their success is kind of my success. So I, I enjoy seeing people grow like that. So that's kind of the uh, yeah. the biggest uh, the biggest story, so to speak, that I'd, I'd be proud of because I, I get to see them grow and I'm always amazed where they end up. So that's cool. I love that. It's the leader leading leaders to create more leader mentality. And I mean, it's definitely needed. Do you, do you see that there's a lack of physician mentorship in that category in most systems? You know, when you look at U.S. News and World Report, uh, there was one that came out about 10 years ago that showed how some of the more successful hospitals in America have physicians as leaders. And, you know, and, and the bigger names, the brand names, so to speak, are almost all have physician CEOs. So we are a bit lacking as a community. I, I always, I, I truly look up to nursing in this respect because nursing has done a better job than medicine has at training their future leaders. And ironically, on the Canadian side of the border, most of the nurse executive, most of the senior executives are actually nurse executives, and good for them because mm -hmm. they formally pursued training in administrative competencies and technical skills earlier on in their career. I think the physicians are a bit lagging in that. So it's nice to see now through the uh, AAPL or the American College of Healthcare Executives that more and more physicians are being involved and pursuing more formal leadership training. So I think as a community as a culture as a profession we are a bit behind compared to others but i have no doubt we'll catch up and uh, you know great work by the aapl the ACHG will, will help with that how many spots are there in these programs like each year um i think in the last well obviously with covid things changed we went from completely in-person cpe training to virtual cpe training 
but I think it's uh, four times a year. Uh, usually okay. two or three times are now uh, virtual, or one or two times are uh, in person. And each time they have a session, it's about seven or eight cohorts, and each cohort's about seven or eight physicians. So it could be almost 50 to 60 physicians, probably three to four times a year. So if you look at that, that's maybe 200 physicians a year. Think of how many hundreds of thousands of physicians there are, so barely 200 will get their CPEs. And it sounds like that is something you felt very uh, helpful in your career, and it's encouraging um, to see other people that are doing the same thing. Definitely, definitely. You know, it's uh, when, when you look at the future of healthcare, you know, I think the... If you look at the past, most CEOs were pure MBAs or people actually didn't have much healthcare experience running hospitals. And we don't like to say that, you know, healthcare is different than other industries, but it is a bit different than other industries. Healthcare culture is different than manufacturing and engineering and finance and IT. We have a different culture. Our end product is a little different than IT's end product or finance or manufacturing or banking. Because of that, the culture is different. So... From a management consulting standpoint, when a business consulting company comes and looks at a hospital, they find some nuances they're just not used to seeing. So you want people truly who have experienced healthcare, the domain experts in healthcare, running healthcare institutions. If you're a great automobile manufacturing CEO, I'm sure you have amazing skills and you could probably run a hospital, but there will still be some issues within the hospital culture that you may not be aware of. So I think it is important that we train healthcare domain experts physician assistants, nurses, occupational therapists, we need to train them in leadership as well as the physicians to help run the hospitals of the future. Not that there's anything wrong with the other uh, superb executives coming in, but you do want to be a domain expert in healthcare before you become a healthcare leader. I think that's essential. And I've said it like all the time that the solutions that the healthcare expert domain are going to come up with and help craft just like your collaborative care examples are going to be better suited for healthcare than someone with just an MBA that hasn't gone through that experience. And so the vitality and the of having leaders in all areas of healthcare physician, nurses, all of it, to get those solutions is so important. Of course. I mean, you could, you know, as I mentioned, you could be a wonderful CEO at a bank and you truly understand the balance sheet and finance and workplace culture and everything. But when you switch domains from banking to healthcare, there are certain issues that will come up that that you just would not be aware of as a leader in a separate industry. So I, I think we need to train more domain experts in healthcare to be the leaders. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Thanks so much for this conversation, Eddie. We really appreciate it. So where can people find you? Do you have a different website or where are you, where are you active on social media? Sure. You know, I think LinkedIn is probably the, uh, the easiest, most consistent way where people find me. And obviously, I have my email address I'm happy to share and uh, even my phone number, which I use for business quite a bit. So okay. happy to share those two. There's also a website that I can give you the link to, which is also on my LinkedIn website, which is uh, really for coaching and all that, that uh, services that I provide. But, uh, you know, probably LinkedIn, as I said, is the most consistent. And obviously, uh, thank you both for uh, this wonderful opportunity. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having us. And thank you for joining us on the Leadership Pulse today.